scripture lesson this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all, rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who directs us in the truth. And so may he strengthen us now to that end as we continue in our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Direct us in our faith and direct us to see Christ clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Early on in The Sound of Music, Mother Abbess and some of the other nuns at the Abbey sing the song, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? This is in reference to Maria, a young novitiate at the convent who doesn't quite fit in, who is more inclined to climb trees, always, is always seems to be late and distracted by a host of other things that she'd rather be doing. And the song is essentially a conversation between these nuns about Maria and what is to be done with the first part of the chorus asking, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? At other points, they ask, how do you keep a wave upon the sand? And how do you catch a moonbeam in your hand? Of course, the point is, you can't. Well, now that many of you are probably singing the song in your head, let's change direction a bit and ask, how do you solve a problem like Paul? But then immediately qualify that there really isn't a problem with Paul. We've noted throughout our study of this letter thus far how rich and dense is the instruction that Paul gives, that there are so many biblical connections and theological depths to plumb. And when coming to a text like Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, the challenge is how do you preach and teach Paul? We can attempt to take it all at once, getting the overall point of what Paul is saying. And there's a, time, there's a time and place for such an approach. But for our purposes, we're going to linger in this text for at least a couple of weeks in the hope of gleaning as much as we can. Of course, the argument can be made that is a good problem to have, and that's certainly true enough. We're getting to further explore the riches, the treasures that are here for us, even as we take Paul's admonition from the previous section to heart. We get to go exploring 
And I trust such an extended expedition will prove beneficial to our faith, to our understanding of Christ and the life we live in Him. Structurally, a case can be made that chapter 2, verses 16 to, uh, 6 to 23 uh, takes on a chiastic shape with verses 14 and 15 at the very center. We can also note that Paul basically comes to the end of the indicative portion of his letter in verse 15 and then switches to the imperative in verse 16. Paul's letters often break down simply in this way with the uh, Ephesians perhaps is the most obvious example. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul teaches them what to believe. And then chapters 4 through 6 are the things to be done in light of that. We might say Paul jumps the gun a little bit in verses 6 and 8 with the imperatives we find there. But our text this morning is still largely Paul's teaching the Colossians what to believe about their salvation in Christ. The apostle has been building his argument setting forth to the Colossians what Christ has accomplished, their identity in Him, and the realities of what is true about them as believers. And Paul's goal for this small-town church is their growth, their maturing, which is accomplished in part through their staying put in Christ and living lives of gratitude. Like a symphony, Paul's building upon these central themes and then reaches the theological climax here in verses 6 to 15 of chapter 2. And, and don't be put off by Paul's manner of instruction because it indicates the importance of what he has to say and what these believers need to hear. And we need this message every bit as much as the Colossians did. In fact, one scholar argues the message of chapter 2 verses 6 to 15 is central to the Christian faith. Christians need to hear it repeatedly so that it becomes so much a part of our understanding of the world and ourselves that we will not become prey to false religious propaganda from rival religionists or secularists. In chapter 2 and verse 4, we heard Paul's first explicit mention of the possible trouble or threat to the Colossians. That's made even clearer in verse 8. But Paul's overwhelming approach has been to focus the attention of the Colossian church upon the truth upon Christ, upon what is genuine. Christ is all that is needed for salvation, nothing else. And Paul further expounds upon that, and profoundly so in this monumental text. So in the spirit of an archaeological dig, which can sometimes result in finding treasure, let's begin to excavate the text, carefully making our way through, digging and brushing with care so that we might fully appreciate what Paul is saying. Now, verses 6 and 7 serve an interesting dual purpose. They basically sum up everything that Paul has said thus far in the letter, but also summarize or give an outline for everything that's still to come. Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, in Him walk, being firmly rooted and being built up in Him and being made firm in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here we encounter the first two uses of in him by the apostle. By my count, there are a total of eight forms of this phrase, possibly nine in verses 6 to 15, rendered in him or with him. The English and Greek vary slightly, but the force of Paul's point isn't lost in translation. This concept of being in Christ, of being in him, is central to Paul's teaching here, as well as in other epistles, and is vitally important for understanding our identity. Also in these verses, Paul uses a plethora of participles, perhaps 10 or more in verses 6 to 15. 
And you, and while you might wonder why that's theologically significant or relevant, it's on account of the fact that participles signify ongoing action or an ongoing state of being that characterizes the life that is lived in Christ. But interestingly enough, Paul doesn't begin with the verb in the participial form, but with one that's in the past tense. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, which signifies a completed action. So what does it mean that they received Christ? Well, Paul is not referring to the common notion in our day of becoming a Christian. Rather, it has to do with the transmission of teaching from one person or generation to another. And so Paul is referring to their acceptance of the proclamation of Jesus, the Lord. This reception would have been signified at baptism, which Paul references later in verse 12. But it's also worth noting Paul's phrasing about Jesus. It literally reads, the Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3 was the last time Paul used this triad in his opening remarks of thanks, mentioning our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is clearly set apart as as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, and also as the Lord, the Master, the Ruler. See, this is Paul's shorthand way of summarizing the the glorious teaching of chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, where he expounds upon Christ's work as Creator, Reconciler, and Ruler, that Jesus is preeminent, which is a subtle reminder that you don't need anyone or anything else besides Him. So having received this Jesus... Paul commands them, so walk in him. This word walk is a term used here and elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to manner of life, how you conduct yourself. You know, we refer to our Christian walk, and that's a perfectly biblical concept and image, and primarily has to do with conduct and the standard of our ethics. When you have received Christ, you're going to live in a certain way, which Paul later expounds in more detail. Again, recall that verses 6 and 7 Give us a hint of what's to come in the letter. Furthermore, Paul commands, uh, Paul's command is in the present tense, which gives it an ongoing, continuous force. They're never to stop walking in Christ, living out their lives according to His commands. And perhaps these all seem like obvious points to make, but the apostle is continuing to impress upon these believers their identity and calling, who they are, and what that means for how life is to be lived. But then notice in the next part of the sentence and how Paul further buttresses his point as he begins his use of participles, being firmly rooted and being built up in him. Now, both of these participles are in the passive voice, which indicates that God has done these things. The Colossians have been firmly rooted. They've been planted. That's gardening or arboreal imagery, isn't it? And it's in a verb tense that indicates a present state that has resulted from a past action. So God has rooted them, and they continue to stay rooted. We might even be reminded of Psalm 1, and the man who is like a tree planted by streams of water. What else has God done? Well, built them up. That's construction or architectural imagery, isn't it? And it's in the present tense, suggesting an ongoing building project. And what is the soil for their roots and what is the foundation for the building? Two words, in him. Paul directs their attention to Jesus the Christ, to Jesus the Lord. He is the starting point. He's the touchstone. The next participle Paul uses is in the present tense and passive voice, being made firm in the faith. God has done it. 
But they're, continu- they're to continue to stay established, confirmed, verified in the faith they've been taught. Again, in just a few words, Paul is summarizing what he's already said. What is the faith? The things to be believed concerning Christ, even as Paul expounded in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2 and verse 5. And as the Colossians had learned from Epaphras. This also picks up on the theme raised by Paul in chapter 1 and verse 23, where he says, If you remain in the faith, having been firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So they are continued to be made firm in this singular faith. But then Paul closes out verse 7 with a present active participle, abounding in thanksgiving. He's telling the Colossian believers that the ongoing status of their lives to which they are to actively give themselves is that of overflowing in the giving of thanks. You know, imagine that you're filling a cup of water at the sink and you leave it under the faucet for too long and the water just runs out in all directions over the rim. It's overflowing. There's an excess. There's an abundance of water. Well, in similar fashion, Paul is saying that the lives of these believers is to be characterized by gratitude that that just flows out all over the place. You may recall the theme of thanksgiving essential to Paul's opening prayer in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. The the Trinitarian shape of the thanks that we're to, to declare to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the great salvation that is ours and how thanksgiving is fundamental to maturity. And although Paul already established thanksgiving as a pattern for prayer, he doesn't hesitate to come back to it as fundamental to the Colossians' way of life. Why might that be? Because it's so important. And because it's so easy to forget or for us to take God's good gifts for granted. And I know this is a subject we've considered before, even as recently as last month, but it bears repeating because Paul's repeating it, which means we need to pay attention to it. We're to be abounding in thanksgiving because of the salvation that's been lavished upon us, the deliverance we have from sin, and for the reconciliation that Christ has achieved through His death. And that means our gratitude is rooted in the past for what God has done and accomplished, but is also the impetus for our continuing on as a thankful people as our status in Christ remains the same and then blesses us. He blesses us with so much more besides. Consider the exodus and Israel in the wilderness. What was one of the challenges that Moses faced, one of the characteristics that emerged among the people? They complained, which meant what? That they weren't thankful, particularly for the manna which God had provided, but also for their salvation. You know, basically what they were saying is that they wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt in order to eat the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. They despised God's grace and favor to them. They'd forgotten what Yahweh had done, which seems almost impossible for us to imagine because how could you forget being let out of Egypt and passing through the Red Sea on dry ground and then watching the Egyptian chariot army get destroyed? And yet that's precisely the point. And their failure and gratitude marks a failure of their faith. And for as amazing a spectacle as the Exodus undoubtedly was in crossing the Red Sea, it pales in comparison to the exodus achieved by Christ through his sacrificial death upon the cross. See, that's the greater exodus, and we're part of that as God's baptized people, our own Red Sea experience, and so we must be a people overflowing with thanksgiving. 
And cultivating the spirit of thanksgiving is vitally important for now, but also for the next generation, for our covenant children, even as they are to remember the works of the Lord, as they are to understand the grace of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's been lavished upon them. You know, it's every bit a testimony, it's every bit as much a testimony to God's grace as to what He keeps someone from as to what He saves someone out of. Does Jesus deliver men, women, men and women from lives marked by sexual immorality, idolatry, homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, drug addictions, and more? Yes, by His grace, He does. But guess what else He does by His grace? He has you born into a Christian home and and baptized before you could remember. And you're brought to church each and every Sunday and raised to love and obey Christ, to pray to Him. And you don't ever remember not thinking that Jesus didn't love you. And you're right to think that way because He does. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like something for which we ought to, which ought to cause in us an overflow of gratitude. Don't despise what you've been given. Don't take it for granted. You know, be in a constant state of giving thanks and never stop being thankful for the redemption that is yours in Christ for the life that you've been given in Him. Well, having given us these two verses just bursting with reminders, Paul's previously hinted at warning is now more plainly stated and quite strongly with the force of an imperative in verse 8. See to it that no one will beat you as the one carrying off a captive through the philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul Paul commands them to look, to see, to be on the lookout, that they aren't taken prisoner, taken captive. Uh, The word can even mean taken like booty. Uh, I suppose there's a sense in which Paul doesn't want them taken by pirates. You know, pirates come, steal booty, they steal treasure, they steal people, and Paul doesn't want the Colossians to suffer this fate. But who are these theological or philosophical pirates for whom Paul has serious concerns on their behalf? Well, based on a couple of hints here and there, but now more clearly in what Paul goes on to say, the apostle is concerned about Judaizers coming in and capturing the Colossian church through their empty religion. Scholars are fairly agreed upon the fact that the verb that Paul uses, which is a present active participle, and the only time it's used in biblical Greek, uh, Sulagogon is a pun on the Greek word for synagogue, synagogue. Furthermore, the warnings that Paul gives in verses 16 to 18 also support this position that Judaizers from the local synagogue in Corinth are chiefly in view. Now, Paul makes some important qualifications in his warning and doesn't want these believers taken captive by philosophy, the only time this word is used in biblical Greek. Now, does this mean that all philosophy is bad and we need to stay away from it? You know, that we shouldn't read the likes of Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle? No, that's not what Paul is saying here, though there may be a word of caution for us when we do read them. But fundamentally, let's ask, what is philosophy? The word itself simply means love of wisdom. Shouldn't we love wisdom? Shouldn't we seek it out? Shouldn't we desire it more than silver and gold, even as we considered last week? Yes, of course we should especially as we understand wisdom as defined by God, which is an all-important qualifier. Paul also mentions empty or vain deceit. You know, if something is vain, it has no purpose. Deceit or deceitfulness is connected to that which isn't true, even as Satan was a deceiver. And if it's empty, 
If it's hollow, then what can it not do? It can't fill. It can only provide more emptiness. Ultimately, there's no substance to it. But there are some important qualifiers to the philosophy and empty deceit to which Paul refers. The first is according to the traditions of men. And here we do well to think about some of the context of the first century in which Paul is writing. As one scholar observes, In Paul's world, ancient tradition ensured the excellence and sanctity of knowledge. If it was old, then it was considered good and not to be lightly dismissed. Today we have convinced ourselves that the newest development is better. New, we assume, means improve. Consequently, we are inclined to be interested in the latest thing. In the Hellenistic period, the ancient age of a religion authenticated it and made it deserving of honor because it had stood the test of time. Now, think about that perspective for a moment and how it can help us to understand how the Judaizers might make their argument with the Colossian church, sounding something like this. Well, we've been around for hundreds of years, even thousands, since we go all the way back to Moses and Abraham. Your new religion hasn't stood the test of time like ours has. Your understanding is lacking. Listen to us and we'll instruct you in what has been taught and accepted for centuries. Now, of course, we have to keep in mind that the faith of Judaism is not to be equated with the Old Testament, but is a corrupted understanding of the Mosaic Law that piled the traditions of men on top of it, obscuring its true message. And also consider that Paul is once again imitating the ministry of Jesus in his own ministry. You know, what did Jesus combat again and again, teach against, warn against? The traditions of men. In Mark 7, we read this. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. See, Paul is combating the same thing. And while the traditions of men are not inherently wrong in and of themselves, when they are set above or against the teaching of Christ, the teaching that is of divine origin, then what comes from man ought to be thoroughly rejected. And as Paul already alluded to in verse 6, the Colossians have received a tradition. They have received teaching, not from humans in general, but from a person, even the Lord Jesus, the regent and reconciler of all creation. Well, Paul also mentions the elements of the cosmos, the elements of the world. What is, what is he talking about here? Well, no small amount of ink has been spilled by scholars on defining this word in Greek, uh, stoicheia. The ESV renders it elemental spirits with a margin note that can also be understood as elementary principles. The New King James translates it basic principles. Uh, some of the best biblical scholars don't agree among themselves as how to render this phrase. And if you're interested in a deep dive into the subject, there are plenty of resources that I can recommend. Some associate stoicheia as a reference to heavenly bodies, uh, assumed to be governed by angels and could overlap with the authorities Paul mentions in 116. Or that it refers to stars or their deities, spirits or demons. Uh, but this understanding of the word doesn't seem to appear until the second century, which is after the time in which Paul is writing. Another understanding is that stoicheia uh, stands for the four basic elements of the cosmos, earth, water, air, and fire. And this was by far the most common usage in literature prior to Paul. 
something fun to think about as uh, a slight aside is that Jesus, the quintessence, is the fifth element that brings harmony to the world. Yet another understanding of stoicheia is elementary rules or the rudiments in the order of the letters, such as ABCs, and could be Paul's way of referring to life under the ceremonial law or even under the Torah. Now, presently, I'm inclined to toward a combination of these last two perspectives in some form or fashion, even as this phrase is often linked to religious practices. See, Paul seems to be using the phrase in a metaphorical sense, writing to these Gentile Christians who have understood the classical meaning as referring to the four elements, but then it seems that Paul may be also be connecting it to Judaism. One other way to approach the interpretation of this term is to consider that the verb form of this word is used five times in the New Testament and means to be in line or to be in rank and conveys the idea of marching in order like a soldier. So perhaps we could even render this phrase order of the world as referring to how the world operated after the fall and before Christ, how the world functioned religiously in its pursuit of false gods and idolatry, and even how the Old Testament, how Old Testament Israel functioned under the law, which has now been fulfilled in Christ. And I recognize that this explanation may leave you less than satisfied or with more questions. But regardless of the precise definition of stoicheia, which Paul uses again in verse 20, the force of his point still remains. We're not to be deceived. We're not to be taken captive by any traditions of men or orders in this world that are apart from Christ and that seek to usurp his position as Lord. And certainly there are philosophies and traditions of men that are seeking to do that very thing in our present day and age. Consider these following characteristics that can be associated with these competing principles, even as David Garland observes. One, they are things that want to take over the role of Lord. Two, they enslave and seek control. Three, they thwart God's creative purposes for humans. Four, they create a climate of fear and heighten the terror of existence for humans by making us feel that we are at their mercy. Five, they heighten the sense of human insignificance and helplessness. And six, they heighten a sense of determinism and create the feeling that humans are puppets under the control of some external force. Now, if you studied the ancient world in any form or fashion and are familiar with the pantheon of Greek or Roman gods, or if you've even studied farther back to older forms of paganism, you know that life spent trying to appease the gods was hardly pleasant. They were fickle, and you could, well, you could please one and offend another, and life was a constant juggling act and anything but peaceful. Or your life was determined by the gods or by the fates, and there was nothing you could really do about it, living out life under a grim determinism. Well, Christ has come, and the world has been reconciled and is being reconciled, and while the pagan pantheon isn't as prevalent today, nevertheless, we must be aware of falling into similar thinking about our existence in the world. Competing rules or orders can come in a variety of guises, and they are as Christless, well, then they are empty, they are empty to the core. You know, one of many examples that I suppose could be cited are the various tests that are available to us, which can actually end up functioning in a pagan, pagan deterministic way, in the way of the old order of things before Christ. You know, whether it's a Myers-Briggs score, a DNA test, or whether you're an introvert or extrovert, 
you know, if we're not careful with this information, then we can end up succumbing to modern version, a modern version of the fates or false gods that have uh, fancy new names who, when held in too high regard, can cause us to be drawn away from Christ and His Word. We can be inclined to think that we have these genetic dispositions or that we have a particular event in our personality, that there are these causes of how we are which can then lead us to excuse sin or think that we're held in bondage by these factors or that someone is justified in their lifestyle and simply can't help themselves. I suppose some of these tests can be interesting and useful, but they need to be kept in their proper place and never placed above who we are called to be in Christ and the life of obedience and righteousness which we are to pursue. Well, in verses 9 through 12, Paul expounds upon the sufficiency of Christ as the answer to the problem raised in verse 8. Lord willing, we'll consider that text next week. But just, but just listen to those four verses again and be, and be newly impressed by Paul's urgency for the church and the singular focus upon Christ that must be ours. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. See, against the onslaughts of deception human traditions and principles bound to a world apart from Christ, we need to be thoroughly grounded in our faith in Christ. We need to understand more fully the significance of His death and resurrection and of our union in Him through baptism and the life we are to lead according to His teaching, His commands, His traditions, and His order for the new world that has been ushered in even on this side of Pentecost. Christ sent the Holy Spirit. The new creation has begun. Don't go back to the old world or become captive to it. Don't be taken in by the empty teachings of men or the old way of doing things. No, the only philosophy that should captivate us is the love of wisdom that is Christ Himself. The only life worth living is the one lived in Him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And we pray that you would help us in, in our weakness of understanding to, to take in the message of the gospel more fully, that your spirit would indeed help us, that, it, that he would impress it ever more upon our hearts and lives, and that we might grow and mature as you would have us to in Christ our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.